Here we go, April the 2nd, 2017, lecture discussion number 277 for those keeping score on the book of Romans, Romans 5 actually, Romans 12, how about that? 1 Timothy 2, Genesis 2, 3 and 4, Ephesians 5 and Matthew 26 for those of you who uh, try to keep track at home. That would be our vast internet audience, it's not exactly vast. But vast is a relative term. We did uh, actually work our way through our latest pile of stuff last week. I believe progress was substantial. You're aware that substantial is another relative term. So results may vary. Which is the point? Frame of reference, location of observer, relativity, all things that must be considered. What am I talking about? I'm rambling. Eventually, the discussion that we're in is going to lead um, us to return to hidden variability, our dispersion of free states, or the uncertainty principle, our realism and locality, the Einstein-Poldalski-Rosen paradox and John Bell's theorem. Now, that may not sound very interesting to you, but I, I think you'll find it uh, incredibly interesting. And all of those are things that are essential pieces of understanding who can, uh, who find themselves confronting the onslaught of secular culture. I've said repeatedly over the years of my so-called career that it's going to be the physicists who will be the first to destroy atheistic evolutionary philosophy or evolutionary monism. It won't be the church. The church has surrendered. It's going to be the physicists. And so I'm trying to prepare you for that discussion, which is already happening. I know you don't, none of you will, will find it. It comes to me because I have an interest in it, and people are kind enough to send me from all over the world now, especially Australia. Thank you, folks in Australia. Hi, Doc. I hope you're doing good. Uh, they send me things that are very valuable and quite uh, uh, illuminating. And so I don't believe that the church is going to be of much value. And I have scripture to back me up. The church is Laodicean 3.16. It's the vomit church. So I expect it to be useless, and I'm not being surprised. We will, I predict, see more and more discussions on the immortality of the soul and the continuity of consciousness, and it will come from the physicists. That's where it's coming now. You'll see a little in philosophy, but... It, Overwhelmingly, the physics community is beginning to talk about continuity of consciousness. You see, if the spirit, the living soul, cannot be extinguished by a physical process, death being the foremost physical process, then the spirit does not arise from, emerge from a physical process. I've said that uncountable times. But I bring it up again because of this recent church outing bus Truck collision. Are you familiar with that? Do you guys see that in the news? Okay. I believe it was somewhere in Texas. There was people, part of a church there that was returning from some kind of retreat or meeting. And they had a, a direct collision with a large, or fairly large truck. And 13, I believe, returning from that retreat. Baptists, by the way. Ah. Yeah, doggone it. That's early. That's page two. It's really awful. No discipline. Anyway, 13 people 
returning from a Baptist retreat, were killed. Their bodies died. The diver, diver, the driver of the truck survived, the one that hit them. Apparently, he was uh, manipulating a mobile device. Uh, That, I guess, is no longer in dispute. The pastor of the affected church had this to say. The media rushed to him, of course. They do that knowing that there's a high likelihood that he will not be able to respond well. So they see him as an unwilling advocate for their position. They were not disappointed this time. The pastor of the affected church said this in his response to the media. He said, I hope, and before I say that, I hope my quote of his quote is reasonably accurate, and I apologize if it's not. I don't wish to attack him. I'm just, I know what's going on. Again, I understand the situation very well. They saw him as a target. But here's what he said. He said this. Why did God allow this to happen? And then he went on immediately after he said that to say this. I cannot answer that. So here's his entire quote. Why did God allow this to happen? I cannot answer this or that. And that's very discouraging to hear for those who wish for the church to be the source of wisdom. The church is no longer the source of wisdom. It should be. It should have always been. But it is not anymore. It has replaced uh, intelligence. Or Let me put it this way. It has replaced reason with passion. This is a country, ours is a country that wants passion. They don't want thoughtfulness. They don't want measuredness. They want passion. We see it in all aspects. And intellectual pursuits are ridiculed in some cultures in our country. I understand what the pastor said was shocking. He was likely in a state of despair and really was emotionally unable to, to fend off what came in front of him, and I I give him a complete pass. But this isn't really much dissimilar to John 11, the sadness of those who were mourning the death of Lazarus. If you have not read the situation with Lazarus' death, it is very commonly repeated today all over the world and probably has been since Lazarus died and was resurrected. The primary lesson of John 11 is that when Christ, God himself in the flesh, is confronted by the weeping Mary, he groans. God groans. Mary comes to him. She is weeping. Why weren't you here? And he groaned over that. If you had been here, she said, and I'm paraphrasing, you could have saved him. Why weren't you here? Who is he? Omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, omnibenevolent God. He can't help but be there. He knows all things. Was he there? Yes. Did she know who he was? No. Her question was was a dishonoring question at best. But it was said in ignorance of who he was. And he groaned over her weeping. Why does God groan over our anguish, our inconsolable wailing grief? Why does God groan when we greet death with hopelessness? Same question. Of all the questions, why did God allow this to happen? Of all the questions that the church should abdicate or has abdicated from, 
this is one of the worst. Why did God allow this to happen? It's no, no much, it's at the same exact level as Mary, if only you had been here. What's implied, if only you had been here? What's implied with why did God allow this to happen? If we, the church, cannot answer this, who's going to answer? Who's left to answer? Who wants to answer? Well, the media does. And who do they represent? They represent the evolutionists, the secularists. And they can't wait to answer. And they always answer. What do they say? Well, they say there is no God. And if there is a God, he allowed it to answer be, or happen because why? He's evil. They shout that physical death is the annihilation of the person. They cheer it. I had a letter from a lady here recently that was confronting an evolutionist who was explaining to his daughter the uh, accuracy or the inviability, if you will, the settled science, for lack of a better term, that uh, evolution has been proven. It is exact. There is no debate. The evolutionist cheers that because they know that, that that means physical death is the annihilation of the person. And it is not. What else is implied by why did God allow this to happen? Causation. By not intervening, that's causation. Lack of intervention is direct causation. That's the implication. This was a sad accident. It is an example of death imposed by outside force. We have death by outside force. We have death by decay. We have death everywhere. What caused this death by outside force? Of these 13 people. If there is no answer to this, if the church has no answer, then there's no reason, there's no purpose. And again, the evolutionists cheer that. They are thrilled that people die and be annihilated. They are happy as they can be because it brings hopelessness to society. It comes straight from Marxism. You've heard me say it thousands of times. Marxism wants physicality and annihilation of the human being. Why do they want that? Because it brings hopelessness, purposelessness. It brings a, a loss of morality. There is no absolute good. There is only relativism. Makes me mad. So what do we do? Well, we study Romans 5, 1 Timothy 2, Ephesians 5, Genesis 2, 3, and 4, and Matthew 26. That's what we're doing today because that's how you confront these kinds of things. The Bible contains the reasons for death by decay and death by imposed outside force. And the solution. Who is the solution? Why he solves it, when he solves it, and how he solves it. Answers abound in the Bible. They're in plain sight for the taking. And again, I don't wish to disparage those who are heartbroken when facing a temporal loss of a loved one. It's a hard, hard thing. And I got it. But I do wish for Christians, especially leaders, to proclaim at least this. Say, if you don't know, at least you can say, I know where it is. I know where the answer is. I just don't know it. question would be, why do you have the job? Is God the cause? Is God the great cosmic sadist that sits up there and runs trucks into buses? 
Or is he instead the great physician, the one who will restore the living soul to the resurrected body? He reunites it. He's the one that fixes all of this. He is the solution to death. So why is there death? Again, that's what we're discussing. Why is there death? Death is everywhere. Why? You have to know because somebody's going to die and they're going to ask you. Please don't answer. I don't know what caused death. I don't have an answer to that. That, that's, that, my goodness. We have to be ready. I submit it's incumbent upon us to be at the ready for these basic questions when they come. So to that end, we're going to study information theory. Everyone say yay. Wow, let the records show that they actually said yay. <laughs> That's astonishing. I should quit right here. Everyone would really say yay if I'd stop now. Oh my goodness, that deserves medicine. I am willing to bet everything I have, which is not much, don't be excited, that this is the only church that, <laughs> could anyone say tomorrow, or next week's lecture is going to be on John Bell's theorem and information theory, and everybody go, yay. I recognize the sarcasm, I do, but still, I am delighted. <laughs> For years now, quantum physics has been investigating consciousness. I hope you know that. It is a natural thing for them to do. They study the micro world, the smallest possible particles. They see the empty space that is at the micro level. And they are studying and investigating consciousness. More specifically, physicists have been focused on consciousness and the death of the body. I would expect them to do it. It fits right in, the, in their wheelhouse and they're, they're headlong doing it. And ask this, why would they naturally be doing it? And again, it's the fundamental principle of quantum physics that information is indestructible. And consciousness, if it is anything, is information. Now, there's a wonderful book you've heard me talk about at the Black Hole Wars where Stephen Hawking uh, suggested that information is destroyed in a black hole once it passes the horizon. You don't care. Look at the drool already. My point is, however... That, that war was fought in the physics community, and the, and the ones who believed that information is indestructible prevail. So now they know information cannot be annihilated. So naturally they go to consciousness, personhood, being, our thoughts, our memory, our mind. And so they have concluded this. From this foundation of information is indestructible, this has flowed. The obvious conclusions, if you will. They say that death is an illusion. That's the physics community. They don't call it real anymore. They say death is an illusion. What I mean by that is the existence of death. Now, notice that contradiction, the existence of death. The atheists now are in opposition to the physicists. The physics community is saying that death is a fallacy, a false concept. There is no death. And they have proved it. 
They are absolutely positive, certain of it. Who is uncertain? The Christians. Right now, the highest form of life in the world would be a Christian physicist. He would have the most information. The church is almost bereft. Uninterested. Passion has obliterated reason and will continue to do so. That is the prophecy of Revelation 3.16. Death in the physics community is a falsehood. It only exists in the minds of those. This is what they say. I'm literally quoting them. Death only exists in the mind of those who connect the death of their body and to the death of their consciousness or their awareness. In other words, those of us, and, and I don't include you, but those who believe that the body dies, consciousness dies, those are the ones who think death is real. But they know that that isn't real, the physics community does. The Bible, as you know, cannot be more clear. We, us, me, you, are never, never identified with our bodies. Because we, as a, as a culture, have identified with the physical, physical body, we have not understood in our country anymore that the mind, the spirit, the consciousness is not, not identified with the body. But the Bible says clearly that we are not identified with our body. We are a living soul that has a body. We are not a body. Never called a body. And I've said that countless times over my so-called 20-year career or better. It's better now. It's really scary. You should see what's happened to some of you. I have memories of you that are not accurate with today's present example. Sorry. That might be, that's cruel, but it's also, what goes out comes back here. This is a boomerang statement. It's really funny to see the pictures of you, and I have them. They're over 20 years old now, of this group. And as you know, I've been going a little longer than that. Where was that? Quantum evidence is confirming Scripture. It's confirming that we are a consciousness that has a body, not a body that emerges a consciousness, because consciousness is information. Quantum, quantum evidences is beginning to shout that consciousness does not depend on a physical structure, our physical structure. It is unaffected by the death of the body. The death of the body has no impact at all. So therefore, death is a lie. It's an illusion. It's fake. Our being is indestructible. Our consciousness cannot be destroyed. And at some point in the near future, four to five uh, weeks perhaps, uh, I will discuss the einstein poldalski rosen argument and John Bell's theorem. It's one of the most famous interactions in physics. Not because it's necessary to know it. All that's necessary is the Bible. You could do this in any way you can. I'm just trying to get to you what's going on around you. And the church should be the last, uh, the last to know, but the church is the last to know. The implications of Bell's uh, theorem with respect to quantum mechanics is very important, nonetheless important. 
And quantum mechanics, again, is the search for the unseen, the micro world. And the church should be expert in the unseen. The physicists should be coming to us because we should be the experts. And it is reversed. I have found it helpful to, to know these things because it immediately keeps me from saying things like, why did God allow this to happen? And if only you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. Okay, that was more or less for free. But it is a, it is giving you an understanding of what's coming. Feel free to take up the homework assignment and begin to study John Bell. He died in 1990. He was my age, so he was amazingly young and vibrant. Um, unfortunately, he died. He was one of the m- more brilliant physicists that has ever lived, and um, hardly anyone knows him. That's the truth, isn't it? If I started running down to all the physicists that have, have said incredibly important things, nobody in the church would know who they were. That's amazing to me. I'm doing my best to fight the tide. How's it going? Okay, we ended up last week with a list, as is often the case, without enough time to put it on the board, so I'm going to rectify that right now. This list that I'm about to put on came about because of Genesis 3.17, which I will give to you now. And unto Adam God said. So this is, Adam has, has fallen. This is the trial of Adam And God is speaking to Adam now, and unto Adam, God said, because you have listened to the sake of your, I'm sorry, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, cursed is the ground for your sake. So this list that I'm about to put on has come about because of that sentence. And I said essentially that it is most common for the church to present Genesis 3.17 as a rebuke, I hope you remember that from last week, or a condemnation, or a dis- demonstration of God's displeasure towards Adam. It is a censorship of Adam. That's what the church says over and over. I would ask for a show of hands for those of you who have thought that, but I do not want to. Because I'm going to do my best to destroy that thinking forever, I hope. The common following assumption, then, is that Adam was foolish because he listened to his wife, that he's stupid for listening to his wife. And they love to call Adam stupid. We have a wonderful comment, or comments from many people now on a couple lectures I did recently where they are, they are coming out and saying, listen, it's not possible for Adam to be an idiot. It is not possible. And it is not true. His intellect is magnificently above ours. We can't even imagine what he was capable of. But when you assume or when you say that what God says to Adam is condemnation, then you, it is very common for those people who do that to, uh, to say that Adam was foolish and stupid for listening to his wife. He should have never listened to his wife. And the subsequent question then would be, of course, what specifically did Adam listen to? What did the woman say that persuaded Adam? And why did he make this foolish, stupid mistake? And all all answers need to be reconciled. If you have an answer with regard to that, if you've thought it through and you've come up with a conclusion of what it was that the woman said that persuaded Adam and 
why he listened to her, then you need to make sure that you reconcile that with Genesis 3, Romans 5.14 and 1 Timothy 2.14 in order for your position to be valid or to be defensible. Remember, Adam is a type of Christ, honored in Scripture to be a type of Christ, and he held fast to his belief. 1 Timothy says there was no unbelief in Adam. The unbelief was in Eve or in the woman. Adam did not disbelieve God. The woman disbelieved God. Undeceived, not deceived, equates to believing God. Deceived equates to unbelief. Adam believed God. Says it as plain as it possibly can. So whatever conclusion you draw has to be consistent with God and Adam being in agreement. Adam believing God. So listening to his wife, then, causes a list. So here comes the list. List makers gonna. This is what happens. Cursed is the ground. I'll leave out a few words. I'm doing it on purpose. For thy sake. In sorrow. Everyone remembers that Eve, or the woman, is told, In sorrow you shall bear children. But Adam is said, In sorrow shall you eat of it. What's it in that sentence context? All the days of your life. How smart is Adam? Really smart. What would he ask? How much time do I have? Why would he ask that? If I came to you and said, I know the day that you will physically die, your body will die, what would you ask me? Yeah, how much time I got? Why would you ask me that? You have things you want to get done. What do you think Adam wanted to get done? But he learned a whole bunch of information right here, didn't he? All the days of your life. What did he learn? That he had days. Then, of course, came thorns and thistles. I'll move G over here because I'll run out of room if I don't. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth. To you, what's the it? Probably the same as the it here, right? Decide what the it is. I'll continue. And you shall eat the herb of the field. You shall eat herb. Too many jokes about herb there. It's really herb, right? I know it. Don't write me, you guys, on the Internet. 
in the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Till you die, till you return to the ground. To the it. Okay. Ground. Dust you are. Dust. You shall return. Okay, we'll stop there for a moment. What is the context? Because what is? I'm sorry. What is the context of this? This list comes about because you listen to your wife. That's because you listen to your wife. The ground is cursed. Not you, by the way. Oh, doggone it. Not you are cursed, not your wife is cursed, but the ground is cursed. What is that? That's fantastic. Can you see? You understand that's fantastic? That's the ultimate dodge a bullet here. Not you, not your wife. The ground is cursed. Note Satan's fate in contrast, Genesis 3.14. This is what he says to Satan. Because you have done this, you are cursed. Satan himself is cursed. Ask why the difference. Why is it that Adam and Eve are not cursed and Satan is? What caused Adam and Eve to not be cursed? What caused it? Let's just take Adam. What caused Adam not to be cursed? Why the difference? I'm going to say that it's all in the context. Because you listened to your wife. Because you listened to your wife, the ground is cursed. Again, what was it that he listened to? Immediately after God says to Adam, to dust you shall return, what does Adam do? Let me read it. i got time. I'm going faster than I thought. Not fast enough, but still faster than I thought. Here it is. And unto, unto Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, You shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shall you eat of it in the, all the days of your life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it was you taken, for dust you are, and unto dust you shall return. And then Adam said, What? Eve. And Adam called his wife's name Eve. He renamed her. So somehow, all of this causes Adam to rename his wife Life. She's no longer man-s. Woman. Equals maness in Hebrew. 
she is now life. That's Eve. So how does he respond to what what God said to him? I'm going to tell you it's celebratory. He's celebrating. Satan was cursed. Adam was not. Immediately after God says to Adam, the dust you shall return, Adam celebrates, renames his wife. She's now called named. He names her life, not death, life. How does this connect to dust you shall return? All of it connects. It's the natural order. Dust you shall return. You would think he would fall to me. If you had the traditional view that the church has, when this is said, Adam should have fallen to the ground and mourned. But he doesn't. He names his wife Life. Ask, how does that connect to dust you shall return? I think it's obvious that Adam saw the curse exactly as it was intended. For your sake. Boy, cursed is the ground for your sake. Can't get any better than that. For your safety, for your benefit, for your welfare. The ground is cursed for your welfare, for your benefit. It is a benefit to you, is what God said. Safety. I'm doing it for your safety. How is the cursing of the ground safety for Adam? What did Adam need to have safety from? What is the issue of... What is unsafe? There's something unsafe. And God has to curse the ground to make it safe. And he, Adam, demonstrates his understanding of what it was that the woman said. Because you listened to your wife, because he listened to his wife, he names her life. Renamed her life. Notice Adam did not rename himself. Of all the people who could be renamed here in this story, with all the people, all the beings, I have Adam, I have the woman, I have God, I have Satan, I have the angelic realm, I have the animals. Of everyone who could be renamed life, Eve is the one that is chosen. Why her? Would any of you who have watched this, or say we were, we were observing it, we saw it all. Um, no, that's not fair, because if we saw it all, we wouldn't misunderstand it, and we'd understand why he did what he did. But just take the common position that is taught today, probably in 99.99% of all churches you could go to, who would you think, after listening to those lectures on, Cursed is the ground for thy sake, in sorrow you shall eat of it, thorns, thistles, dust you shall return, sweat of the brow, who would have gotten the the, you're, we're going to name this person life of the, all those that I named. God, Satan, Eve, Adam, the angelic host, both fallen and unfallen and animals. It's the woman that's chosen by Adam to be renamed life. What did she say? 
Again, I can't stress that enough. What did she say? Again and again and again, I can't say this enough, Adam prefigures Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, that's his name. That's a comma. You could put the E in there if you wish. Yeshua, what's it mean? Salvation. The name of God the Son is salvation. That's his name. Proverbs 30. So, somehow, salvation figures into this because Adam is a type of Christ. So, where is the salvation? How does Adam prefigure Jesus Christ? Salvation. Now, let's finish the list. Probably have to go to the other side, don't I? Let's see. I will. I will flip it over because I can. Because it is a platinum model, holy dry erase board. This is where we left and that we have to get back to. Revelation 17, Daniel 7, Daniel 2, and all of that. I've been saving it because I know I'm headed back there really soon. But let's see if it erases. It does. Good. This is how a professional pastor who only wrote 6,000 words adds time to something that already is way too long. She's unprepared. Okay, here we go. Back to the list, right? Where am I? Here I am. What's that? He's right. I have to do that. Okay, so we're going to finish the list here. Immediately after Adam renames the woman life, so he renames... The woman, so the other one, because you listen to your wife, now we have a break, renames the woman life. Immediately after, here's what goes on. Unto Adam and his wife. You want to think of it as a call and answer, you can. God says something because you've because you have listened to your wife, he speaks all of these things. Adam's answer is, rename the wife Eve. Now, after he renames the wife Eve, or life, this happens. It's almost like God responds to him. That's a humanistic approach, because I'm talking about an omniscient creating God outside of time. But immediately after, if you wish to think of it that way, I think it is appropriate, or I hope it is. I'll find out someday if I'm wrong. Unto Adam and his wife. So, this happens to both of them. It could have happened to just one of them, right? But it doesn't. It happens to both. The Lord God makes coats of skin. God makes coats 
of skin. That means animals died. So he made coats too. And he clothed them. How's it going so far? Clothed them. Remove that required the removal of the figs. The fig garments. Oops. Ah. Let's just stop here. Take a look. Right after he renames the woman life, God comes unto Adam and his wife. He makes two coats of skins and he removes the figs and he clothes Adam and Eve. How's it going? Is this good or bad? Hopefully you can see the, the fantastic goodness here. This is, please say good. This is blood coverings here. Blood. He covers them with blood garments. And that, of course, will take us to the judgment seat of Christ and the blood garment there as well. All blood garments go back to the first blood garment. And so we'll be in, we'll back there here pretty soon. It's how we got here in the first place. So blood garments are fantastically merciful. Because Adam listened to his wife and named her Eve, he gets a blood covering. And they both get a blood covering. Adam and the wife. So then after that comes this. The great behold of Genesis 3. Behold, the man has become like the man, not the woman. You've heard me say that many times. The man has become a type of one of us. Oops, I gotta, I gotta do that right. And that, of course, Romans 5.14. How's that? Do you know a type of Christ? How many are there? There's more than we would ever know, I think, in, in Scripture. Moses had over 300 things about him that were types of Christ. But Adam is the first one to be identified as a type of Christ. Now, let me keep going. Here's a guy that eats the ground. He sweats when he, he dies. He listened to his wife. Okay, so how is that a type of Christ? Where in this list that I gave you on the other side is become like Christ? Pick the thing that is Christ-like there, that is a type there. Is it when he eats the ground? Is it when he sweats? Is it when he dies? Is it when he listened to his wife? Is it when he drank poison? When he drank the cup? Ate the poison? See what I did there? God covers Adam with blood right after Adam renames the woman. (coughs) And and let me finish the list here because all of these will be out of order. Uh, Childbirth is on this list, as you'll find If you read the entire context of the text, the seed of the woman is on this list. Um, The 
The seed of the woman crushes the seed of the serpent. So, this is important here. Let me ask you this. Is there anywhere in this story where Adam crushed the head of the seed of the serpent? That's something that Christ would do, or did do. Uh, then, of course, the, uh, the fact that God did not rename the woman. Adam did. And then the flaming sword. The ultimate uh, protection from the tree of life. In other words, fallen humanity is protected from the tree of life so that they can be saved. And again, childbirth. I can't reemphasize childbirth enough. So what's in that list that I gave you by Adam as anything but mercy? Let's go back. There's, well, we don't have to. There's nothing on the other side that is anything but mercy. It's all mercy. All, every piece of it is. This is mercy. Under Adam and his wife, God makes coats of skin, clothes them, removes the figs, blood garment. Behold, the man has become a type of one of us. The woman will be saved in childbirth. The woman will have a seed. The seed will crush the seed of the serpent. God does not rename her. Adam does, but God does put a flaming sword in front of the tree of life to protect man, fallen man, now from the tree of life. He did all of that. It's all fantastically good. Everything is good. Everything is mercy, especially when you compare it to Satan's sentence. So let's reread Satan's sentence. Just to take it slow. Slower than usual, just to pound it in, which is what we're doing. This is what I call destroying your morale. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, because you have done this. What is it that he did? Done what? You are cursed above all cattle. Cattle? And above every beast of the field. Why is it that cattle is mentioned before every beast of the field. God likes cattle. Why? He doesn't destroy Assyria because of cattle. He worries about the cattle in Sodom and Gomorrah. Let me finish that. God said unto the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field, upon your belly you shall go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between her seed and your seed. It, her seed, shall crush your head, and you shall, your seed shall bruise his heel. Under the woman I will greatly multiply thy sorrow. Oh, that sounds like a familiar word. Let's go back. You notice the woman has sorrow in childbirth. The man has sorrow in what? Eating. In sorrow you'll eat. What is it? We'll go on to that in a minute. Multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and your desire shall be to your husband, and he shall rule over you. Satan is cursed above all cattle, above all 
every beast. So what have we now learned here? The entire animal kingdom is cursed. Does that make sense? You are cursed above all animals and every beast. So what's that mean? All animals and every beast are cursed. Cursed with what and why? What do the animals do? They just were hanging out. Is it fair to curse all the animals? Please answer that correctly. That's the same as, I don't know what happened here. And why did God allow this? Is it fair that all the animals, is it good that all the animals die? It is good. Why is it good that the animals die? What would happen if the animals didn't die? How evil is man going to get? Think about what would happen if man is able to keep animals alive. What would man do with the animals that are alive? How evil, again, would man be? Has man been? The entire animal kingdom is now going to die. Why, again, would the animals die? Because the federal head of the earth has fallen and all of creation is affected. What happens to the federal head affects everything that he is the federal head of. There's a transference here. Did Adam know that as soon as he ate the poison, that every single animal would be cursed with death just like him and Eve? Did Adam have full knowledge of the consequences if the namer, the one who named everything, chooses sin? Did he know ahead of time what would happen? The federal head dies and everything dies. Did Adam know that was the rule? If the ruler dies, all die. And I have said and I say and I'll say it many times again, yes, Adam knew. Not deceived. If Adam knew the impact of his fall, who else is here? Did Eve know the impact of his fall? Did Eve know when she is talking to him and he is listening to her that if you do this, every animal will die? Did Satan know if the fall, if the head of the, the federal head of humanity and of the animals dies, everything will die? Who knew? When did they know it? The Nixon question. I'm saying to you, they all knew it. And they all knew it from the beginning. How would Satan know? How would he know that if the ruler of Eden dies, everything dies? I gave away the answer. Because Satan, of course, was the first ruler of Eden, the mineral Eden. Ezekiel 28, 12 through 19, Isaiah 12 through 15. That by, I stopped myself. I don't get a mark. By is not enough. By is legal. Has to be the whole phrase. That is fantastic. I should get some kind of praise and a prize and maybe chili. Hebrew principle of double reference. Ezekiel 28, 12 through 19. Isaiah 14, 12 through 7. Isaiah 7. That is where, if you want to study the Hebrew principle of double reference, that is the first place you should start. Okay. Satan experienced his own fall. So did the angelic host. 
Adam likely had full knowledge of the turmoil in heaven that's demonstrated for us in Revelation 12. That's the culmination of it, the ending of Satan's reign and terror, if you will, in heaven. Reign of terror. That's Revelation 12. There's always two tracks to consider when you're reading Genesis uh, 2 and 3. The humanity tract and the angelic tract. They are simultaneously, mostly, and interwoven. Okay, back to the serpent. The snake would become a symbol of Satan. Every time you look at a snake, you know that's a symbol of Satan. You're supposed to learn what Satan is like by looking at a snake. Mankind would look at the snake and be reminded of what happened at Genesis 3. Adam renamed Eve. God changed the snake. Snakes to this day, generally speaking, strike human beings a lot. Where does a snake, generally speaking, primarily hit a human being? Have you ever been in snake country? What do they wear? Boots. How high are the boots? They're knee high, at least, when they're walking in snake country. How come? Because snakes do what when they hit you? They strike where? What does it say? The seed of the woman will crush the head of the snake, but the snake will strike the seed of the woman where? In the face? No. In the upper shoulder. The snake will fly through the air and grab him by the earlobe. Does it say that? No. It is not inconsequential that it is told to us that the snake... Being in the dust, that's their location. They are limited in opportunity, pretty much confined to striking the legs of mankind and most animals in the legs, in the feet, in the heel. It seems that the snake was changed to become a creeping thing. There were creeping things, but the snake seems to be identified. Now you're going to be a creeping thing. God does that. How does that Interact with what Adam does. Because they connect. The snake is poisonous. It's lowly. When it's around a human being, it's got problems. Because what do human beings in boots do to snakes? Stomp on their heads. Going on for centuries. What do horses do to snakes? What do all animals do to snakes? If they can, crush the head. There's information to be gathered in this symbolism of the snake. And Satan is identified now as a snake-like thing. Satan is now a dust eater in symbol. So what, the, what does that mean? What was he before? What is the difference? Something Satan got changed. The symbol got changed, but so did the person. Something happened to Satan there. He is changed now from what he was to something else. As you know, dust has death affixed to it. Dust also is the substance from which the bodies of mankind are constructed. Obviously, we will have to establish the meaning of eating dust as it applies to Satan. Since I'm running low on time, let's switch back to childbirth and listening to your wife. Adam had a discussion to, to make. I'm sorry. Adam had a decision to make. The woman is poisoned and she's dying. She can be saved. Which, uh, <coughs> excuse me. She can be saved. <coughs> she can be saved with childbirth. I skipped some steps there. Did Adam know she could be saved in childbirth when he's talking to her? I believe he did. 
What does she say that Adam listened to? How did Adam stop her from going to the unprotected tree of life that was unprotected at that time? How did he end up stopping himself and her after they both were poisoned? How much time did all of this take? Days? Months? How many days? How many months? I'm going to guess seven. Again, this is a Hebrew principle of recurrence here. Much, much more of all of that. I'm out of time. See the Internet. Anyway, the woman said... The woman can be saved in childbirth, but she will have sorrow. God added sorrow to childbirth, and he also added sorrow to Adam eating. He's going to eat in sorrow. You're going to have childbirth in sorrow. So somehow eating and childbirth both attached to sorrow. Why? If I told you you were going to have, you're going to have childbirth pains or you're going to have eating pains, which one would you pick? Doesn't seem fair here. Is it fair? Is it perfect? Is it thoughtful? Did God figure this out? Has he given you some information that we have to get? There's some relationship between eating and sorrow. Looks like Adam got a pretty good deal. You're going to have gas. A woman's going to have childbirth pangs. Ha! Have you seen the difference? That can't be it, can it? So somehow there is a relationship between eating and sorrow and childbirth and sorrow. Notice what did Adam do? He eats something. And now forever he's going to have eating sorrow. Do you have eating sorrow? Should you have eating sorrow? What kind of eating sorrow do you think Adam had? And Eve has something every bit as bad. She has childbirth sorrow. Why does she have childbirth sorrow? Why does he have eating sorrow? What do you think it refers to? Any ideas? Once again, you're wise to not tell me. The federal head has fallen. The ruler has been divested of his authority, but he's now the ruler of only, he's the ruler of somebody. Who's he the ruler of now? All his ruling is gone. He's not the ruler of the animals anymore. He's not the ruler of humanity. He's not the federal head, but he's ruling somebody. Who's he got? He's got her. Got one. What? Can you see what's happened? Can you see? That must have something to do with because you listen to your wife and something to do with why she has sorrow in childbirth, something to do why they both are saved, both covered, they can't be isolated. Clearly, this is a cause and effect. The second Adam, the last Adam, would come through the childbirth, ultimately, of the woman. Why did God come through childbirth? He didn't have to. Yes, he did. See, that was a trick question. God had to come through childbirth. Salvation comes through childbirth. All will die because the first federal head lives. All who live will live because the second federal head dies. If Adam does not go with Eve, final thought, if Adam does not fall, is there any chance that Eve could have children? Yes or no? Quickly answer because you'll make a mistake. Now go home and read Genesis 6 and get back to me. Next week, we will answer every single one of those questions. Who believes that? Not a single person. That's fantastic. That's almost as good as 
cheering over Bell's theorem. Let's rise and be dismissed.